this past, <clears throat> excuse me, this past Tuesday, I went to the dentist. I got a call on Friday, and they asked if I could move my appointment up to 1.30 instead of 2 o'clock. I said, certainly, the sooner we get this over, the better, right? So I arrive at 1.27, and uh, it's only a short walk from my house, and I arrive at 1.27, and the receptionist greets me, and she says, have a seat. The doctor will be with you in a moment. I sit down, and I pick up a National Geographic from 1984 or something like that, and I begin to peruse it and look through it. I pick out my phone, and I look at it, and it says 145, and I'm thinking, well, we moved this up so that we could get it over with, and now it's 145. At about 154, they asked me to go back and sit in the chair. So I went back and sat in the chair all by myself. I got out my phone, and I cleaned out a couple of old messages and listened to things on my voicemail and did some things like that and sat and waited and waited and waited. And finally, at about 2.10, the dentist walks back and he says, I'm so sorry to keep you waiting. I'm not a very good waiter. I don't know about you. I don't enjoy it very much. When we get to Habakkuk chapter 2, that's the position that Habakkuk is placed in. However, the image of a waiting room and, and the idea of waiting, a waiting room oftentimes comes into our mind. And we think if we're waiting on God, then we are sitting in that room, listening to Muzak, allowing ourselves to peruse old magazines, and hoping for his arrival. But Habakkuk gives us a different kind of view. He gives us a very active view of waiting. He gives us this idea that when we wait, we are involved in the waiting. It's not like we are just sitting back. Instead, we are actively waiting because of the things that we know. Habakkuk is a very interesting book. Remember, the complaint that he levels to God is the complaint that these Babylonians, or Chaldeans as they were often called, they are ungodly, they are unjust, and they are the ones that are going to judge us. He doesn't see it, he doesn't get it, he doesn't like it. And so he questions and complains to God. Now, the beauty of the book is that God does have a response for him. The response and the conclusion come in chapter 3, which is a beautiful chapter that you'll, you'll enjoy if you haven't read it, or you will read it, and uh, it, it's a beautiful chapter. But anyway, God, uh, uh, the complaint is leveled, and God gives the answer. Now, the beautiful thing about this is that we see time and time in Scripture where people complain or question God, don't we? That's an encouraging thing to me, because in my finite, small mind, I oftentimes have questions for God, and he welcomes those questions. But please remember, when we come to God in question, when we come to God with complaints, we need to remember a couple of things. First of all, he's God, and he has no obligation whatsoever to answer our questions. He is under no obligation. You see, when he does answer us, he does so out of grace, mercy, and love, not obligation. The second thing about when we complain or ask questions of God is that God can say no. He can say no. And as we find in Habakkuk, we find that God has his own plan and has his own way of doing things. So this morning, what I would like for us to do is look at Habakkuk chapter 2 and learn what we know while waiting for God that helps us to wait. What we know that helps us to wait. Waiting actively. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it says this, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts... I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am going to and what answer I am to give to this complaint. 
Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and it will not delay. The first thing that we know is we know that God has a plan. God has a plan. And please notice the the numbers of of personal pronouns that Habakkuk uses. He says, I will wait, I will see, I will hear. That plan that God has is an individual plan. I understand that there are certain things that God does for nations, and in Israel's case, that happened often. But for us, there is this principle that we need to understand that God has an individual plan for you. So while you are waiting to hear the answer to your complaint, there is an individual plan that God has for you. God has something for you. And notice what he says, I will stand at my watch. I will station myself at the rampart. I will stand at my watch. He is active in looking to God. He wants to know what it is that God is going to say. You see, sometimes we pray in a panic, don't we? There's problems, and so we pray in a panic. And as soon as the panic's over, we think the answer has come. But that's not necessarily the case. And Habakkuk is showing us here, I'm going to wait and I'm going to see what it is that God's going to say. And he uses this illustration of one standing on a rampart. And if you you understand in the Old Testament, in, in the ancient Near East, they had walls. And the position of the rampart was the person who would look to see who was coming, the enemy, and give them an early warning. And so that was a position of great importance. And so Habakkuk says, I am assuming this position to, 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 to let you know that I understand how important this is. You see, the position on the ramparts, seeking God, I will, I will do these things. He says, I will look to see what he has to say. Now think about this for just a moment. When you pray, do you wait for God's plan? Do you look to see what he has to say? Now remember, Habakkuk is a contemporary of Jeremiah, of Nahum, of Zephaniah, of King Jehoiakim, of King Josiah. Those were his contemporaries. Now think about the revival under King Josiah. If I am uh, uh, Habakkuk and I have access to the king, don't I want to go in and talk my problem over with the king and see what he has to say? Or my buddy Jeremiah, maybe I should talk it through with him. But you see, that's not what Habakkuk does. Instead, Habakkuk says, I will wait to hear, to see what God has to say. Are you willing to do that with your problem? You see, too many times what happens with problems and when we complain to God, we complain to God and then we run to our neighbor, we run to our friend, we begin to tell people about it and we begin to say, "Uh, uh, and by the way, will you pray about it? And pretty soon what happens is we begin to admire the problem and the problem becomes important to us instead of what it is that God is going to say. And Habakkuk says, listen, while we are waiting, we are actively waiting because God has a plan for you. God has a plan. Notice what happens in verse 3. He says that the Lord replied, the Lord speaks to him. Now, you see, we need to understand that while we are waiting and we are listening, how do we understand what the plan of God is? I think there are a couple of ways. First of all, through the word of God, right? The word of God is so powerful, and sometimes we forget that. The thing that we forget is that daily in the word of God means that in the future we will have resources for the plan of God. Josiah is a great illustration of this. In 2 Kings chapter 22, he's the eight-year-old who becomes king, and then a few years later they're cleaning out the temple and they find the scriptures. And what happens when they begin to read the scriptures? Revival explodes across Israel. 
There's great revival because of the word of God, because they understood what the plan of God was. Before you begin to question God, and even after you've questioned God, ask yourself, how much time have I spent listening to God through his word? The other way that God communicates to us is through uh, opportunity, right? The closed and open door. In the book of Matthew, you remember when he said to his disciples, he says, you need to ask, seek, knock. And what happens? Opportunity. The door is opened. The door is open. The Apostle Paul, how many times did he talk about, the reason I'm doing this is because a great and effective door has been opened to me. He understood the opportunities that are before us. And sometimes God communicates to us through opportunities. Look, see, listen to what God has to say. He also does it through impressions of the Holy Spirit. This is a very, very uh, difficult thing sometimes because sometimes we think God is impressing something upon our hearts when it is obviously contrary to his word. So you see, if you feel like you are getting an impression from the Holy Spirit that you should do something, measure it against the word of God. He speaks to us. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation, make it plain on the tablets. Write down the revelation and make it plain on the tablets. Because what's happening here is he wants to make this public. It might be an individual plan for you, but he wants you then to make it public. Write it down, put it on tablets, let people see it. When God has an answer for what, he, for what is ailing you, what problem you are going through, what trial is yours, share it with somebody else. You see, what he uses here is he uses the illustration of a herald. A herald was the Pony Express of the ancient Near East. Probably the, the herald that you would remember is Pheidippides. Pheidippides was the guy that ran from Marathon to Athens and told the Athenian people that they had just been Victoria, victorious over the Persians. He ran that 26 miles. And when he got there, he says, Joy, we win. And he died. Remember that guy? Pheidippides was his name. That's where we get the idea of running a marathon because it was the Battle of Marathon that they run. But anyway, what he's saying here is share confidently what God is going to say. You see, God is so sure of his plan. He's so sure of what he's saying. He's saying, broadcast it. Tell people. Let them know. You know, it's not like you get that phone call and someone says, hey, listen, can we meet somewhere and talk? Because I really don't want this to get out. God says, hey, not only do I want this to get out, but I want it to be a permanent record, so put it on a tablet because I've got a plan for you. God's plan. He's confident in it. Verse 3 says, For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the word of God. It's coming. Wait for it. It's coming. This is a a reminder to us that the revelation that is coming in chapter 3 is going to be supported by what happens in chapter 2. In our lives, God has a plan. We are waiting, knowing that he has a plan. If we don't wait, we rush ahead. You know, there are illustrations in the Bible of people rushing ahead. Remember, the, the angel of the Lord came to Sarah and Abraham and said to them, you're going to have a child, and Sarah laughed and said, I'm too old. So, Abraham, go into Hagar. They rushed ahead of the plan of God. Think about Peter. You remember Peter at the garden they were praying, and Judas brings the soldiers, and when the soldiers approach, what does Peter do? He whips out his knife and he cuts off Malthus's ears. He rushed ahead of the plan of God. The plan was Jesus was going to be arrested. He was going to be crucified. That was part of the plan of God. Wait for it. 
Wait for it. Don't rush ahead. God has a plan. Please notice what happens in verse 4. We have the second thing that we know when waiting for God to answer our questions. The second thing that we know is we know the power of faith. Now what I would like to do is just take verse 4 as itself. And there's one phrase in there that you need to see and need to understand. Then we'll wrap the rest of the, the, the end of the chapter around it so that you kind of get what he's the point that he's making. Look at verse 4 of Habakkuk chapter 2. It says, uh, it says, see, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. And then this but is very important because this is the, the theme, the key to the, the entire book. He says this, he says, but the righteous will live by his faith. But the righteous will live by his faith. Literally, he writes, the justified man by his faith shall live. So what we need to do is try to understand these three parts, the three parts that he's talking about. You remember Martin Luther? Martin Luther was the one that was the Augustinian monk, and he decided to go into the monastery where he would find salvation. He would find a way to put down all of his badness to somehow merit God's goodness because of all that he was going to do. He left a practice of law to go into the monastery to do that. And he is one who discovered this, this text and made it so real in his own life. You see, the gospel message is right there in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. He is trying to help us to understand that, that man is justified before God on the basis of what God has done. And we get that by our faith, and then that's how we live. Sorry for the blank stares, but we'll get through this. So stay with me. This is so important. Look at verse 4. He says this, the justified man. What are we talking about? What is the justified man? That is the man that has ceased trying to please God by himself. The justified man is the one that has been declared righteous. It's an idea of a legal term. You're guilty. You're declared righteous by God. Why? Because of what Jesus Christ has done. Because of his blood. The justified person, the justified man, the justified woman. The man who ceased trying to please God by his own ways. The, the book of Romans is all about this. The book of Romans. And let me give you one glimpse of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, it says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation. For in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the justified man by his faith shall live. God is the one who makes you right. God is the one who changes your life. Notice the second part of this verse. The justified man by his faith. Not faithfulness or right dealings. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about trust and belief. That person who believes that trust, the book of Hebrews is all about faith, isn't it? Hebrews chapter 11 is all about a book of faith. It's a chapter of the, those that are in the hall of fame because of their faith. It is a book that helps us to understand that there is something better that comes along. And that better is that we trust in what Jesus did. That's better than all of the old ways of, of working and trying to merit God's favor. The book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, you find out that it's all about action, right? It's all about action. Hebrews chapter 11 especially. They hear the word of God and what do they do? Something. 
something. Moses, by faith. Noah, by faith. Abel, by faith. They hear it. They do it. Faith moves. Look at the the last part. The justified man by his faith shall live. This is the book of Galatians. All of the Christian life that you have is because of faith in what Jesus Christ has done. And Galatians talks about living by faith. Living by faith. You see, Galatians 3 says this, Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law. The just by his faith shall live. Now think about this for just a moment. We're in the Old Testament, Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. There are three words that Habakkuk uses, and then the New Testament uses three books to explain those three words. Is it important? It's pretty important. You see, the power of what it is that's going to happen in our life is ignited by the faith that we have. Now don't get confused here for just a moment. Hang with me. Faith is not a virtue. Faith is a gift from God. You say, well, how do I get faith? The disciples said that, remember? The disciples said, Lord, increase our faith. And how did he increase their faith? By talking to them, by the words of God. In Romans it says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So remember that your faith is a gift that God gives and is strengthened by what it is that we know about God and what he can do. Sometimes the other thing that we we, we get mixed up in is we think that's all I need. I just have to believe. I just have to have faith. I believe that if if I stand here and I run and I push forward like this, I believe with all of my heart that I can fly into the audience and not hurt anyone or myself. I believe that with all my heart. Now you're sitting here and thinking, you're a fool. Why would you believe that? Just by the look of you, you've got to weigh at least 230 pounds. And gravity is a law that you will violate horribly. You see, I'm putting my faith in something that obviously I shouldn't. See, Habakkuk is putting his faith in God, understanding with a look ahead of what will happen with the Messiah. We put our faith in Jesus Christ, who is able to do so much. So that while we are waiting, we believe that he is going to come and give us an answer to the problem that we have. I was on a committee one time. And we were going through the committee, and you know how it is on committees. You know, what's the joke? Uh, uh, a camel is a, is a horse designed by a committee. Uh, and so what you have is, in the committee, you have everyone's opinion, everyone's ideas, and everyone, oh, we've got to look at this angle, we've got to look at this side. Gotta, and finally, there was this one guy, and he stopped the meeting. And he says, hey, hey, fellas, why don't we just trust God? You see, sometimes we forget that, don't we? Sometimes that's the element that we leave out. That's the element that says, you know what, you know, I'm a man of great thought. I'm, I've got this mind. I've got to line up A, B, C, and D, and I've got to do my homework. I understand that. But there comes a place where we say, you know what, God is able to do so much more than I ever imagined or hoped for, and I believe that he will do that. What a marvelous thing that we have here In this book, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the justified man by his faith shall live. Now, now let's try something. Think about this for just a moment. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a pastor, and he pastored the Metropolitan Tabernacle in England back in the 19th century. Great, renowned world. Everybody knew him. He traveled, spoke, probably written more than any other pastor. 
He's a very famous guy. He said these words. He says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Now think about this for just a moment. When trials and troubles come in your life and that wave hits you, do you kiss the wave and say, thank you for casting me towards God? Or do you get angry and say, God, what have you done? I'm on my own here. I'm floundering and and trying to get my head above water instead of saying, thank you, Lord. I believe that you have a plan. I believe that you can do something in my life. You see, when we're waiting on God, we understand that he has a plan. We understand that the power is in faith. Martin Luther, we talked about him. One of the changing moments in Martin Luther's life was when he went to Rome. And what he did was he, he took a trip to St. John's Lateran Basilica. It was a basilica where Constantine's mother had brought back the stairs from Jerusalem, the stairs of Pilate's Praetorian uh, uh, Hall, where, where Jesus walked up and down when, the night that he was being tried. And blood had dripped and someone had covered over the blood drops with, with crystal and they had turned it into a, a shrine where you could go and all these things. And Martin Luther thought, this is the place that I need to go, where I will be able to, on my own, work and pray and and, uh, walk these stairs on bended knee and, and make my way into God's presence. And on those stairs, Martin Luther is walking and he's falling to his knees and he's reciting prayer after prayer after prayer. And his son, Dr. Paul Luther, tells the story of his father's moment. He says, and then there was a moment when my father understood the words of Habakkuk, the justified man by faith shall live. He dropped his prayers. He stood to his feet. He left Rome and went back to the monastery and began to search the scriptures to try to understand how important faith is in what we do in life. See, God has a plan, and the power for that plan is faith. Please notice, beginning in verse 5, things begin to change. God is talking. He is sharing. And what happens is God begins to share the path of the faithless. The path of the faithless. You see, sometimes while we are waiting, we see all of these things around us and all these people, and they seem to be achieving great success. This is written about in Psalm chapter 73. In Psalm chapter 73, there was a guy that led worship. His name was Asaph. And Asaph, he saw all of this wickedness, all of these wicked people, but he saw that they were prosperous. And this did not sit well with him. He did not understand why everyone is prospering. And he is living his life the best that he can according to what God wants, and he's not prospering. And so what did God do? God took him into the sanctuary and reminded them of their end And reminded them that the wicked will come to their end. The faithless, the path that they're on is leading to destruction. You see, he's trying to help us to understand that part of the answer here is understanding that the path of the faithless is death. When we're waiting, we need to wait with those kinds of eyes. In the the following verses, 6 through 19, there are five woes. Uh, Some people translate it, oh, how Horrible it is for you because these woes are like grief or sorrow that will come upon you. He is no doubt aiming at Babylon, no doubt about it. But in his aim at Babylon, I think there are principles that we can extract out of it to try to understand what he's saying. 
In essence, verse 4, God has shown that the just, the godly, the righteous, the chosen ones have life. Now he's going to show, show beginning in verse 5 through verse 19, that the, the uh, faithless, the proud, the puffed up, the drunken, the seducers, the idolaters, their end is death. And so he's trying to help us to understand that there is a huge contrast here. You may think that everything's going great for Babylon, but it's not. You may think that everything's going great for that person in your life who seems to be blithely walking through life without a care in the world and doing whatever they want, and they have so much. But that's not a good way to look at it. Instead, understand their end, their path that they're on. I'll look at verse 5 if you would back at chapter 2. Verse 5, uh, well, let's go back to verse, at the beginning of verse 4. It says, See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. It says, Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is, a, as, he is as greedy as the grave and like, like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, and then we go to the five woes. But you can see the, the idea here of, of, of pride that's there. They're puffed up. They're greedy. They're insatiable. It's like death. Death never ends. It's never satisfied. There's another death. There's another death. And the, these are characteristics of those that are faithless. They aren't trusting in what God can do. They're trusting in what they can do. Look at the first woe in verse Uh, Verse 6, it says, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. You can see selfish, selfish, selfish ambition here, can't you? It's all about themselves. What can I do is what Babylon was all about. They devour other nations. They use the the people of other nations to fuel their nation. It is selfish ambition. You see, the pride that they have, the desires that they have, the ambition that they have is to simply have something more than somebody else. They're full of themselves. Their ambition is driven by this desire to have more than others. Selfish ambition. The selfishness piles up, doesn't it? It just keeps going and going. Their actions are faithless. They are greedy and selfish. The contrast of the faithless and the faithful should be great to us. You see, their ambition is self. Their ambition is what they can get for themselves. You see that in those verses. But then you you hear about a guy like the Apostle Paul. And what is his ambition? He says in Romans, he says, my ambition has been to do what? To preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or he he tells the Corinthians, we make it our goal to do what? To please God. See the contrast there? The faithless and the faithful. The contrast of, of myself versus what God wants. You see, it, it's so easy for us to say, well, you know, I'm not babbling. I'm not eating anybody or hurting anybody. But sometimes selfishness rules in our lives when instead we should be making ourselves aware of what it is that God will do for us if we make him our goal. It pleases God when we act in a faithful way towards him. 
Look at the second woe. The second woe is covetousness. It says, Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Covering, collecting, hopeful of finding security in this. You notice what they said in verse 9. We're going to go up high. Why? Because this way we have all that we want and we're able to be protected. We're up high. We're setting ourselves above everyone else. The faithless infidel has nothing but your desires and your goods to take for himself. Again, it's a contrast. When you think about Mark chapter 8, in Mark chapter 8 you have the story of the feeding of the 5,000, you have the, the healing of the blind man, and then you have Jesus saying this. He says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Faith, in faith I believe that God will take care of my needs. Faithlessly, the infidel says, I will get what I want because I see it, I want it. It might be yours, but it's all right, I covet it and I want it. The contrast is so apparent. Look at the third woe. The woe, woe number three is the exploiters. They're exploiters. It says, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth we be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See what they're saying there? They're saying, you know what? We find the weak and take advantage of them. Do you see the modern day parallel to that? That's bullying, isn't it? Bullying is simply finding someone weak and then taking advantage of that. And, and that's what the, the infidel does, the faithless that do. They, they exhaust themselves for nothing. They believe that they must be the ones that will create a name for themselves. Reputation is important to them, not character. Reputation is what I think of myself and want other people to think. Character is what God knows that I am. You see, the bully builds a reputation on bullying. That's the, the opposite of what a faithful person does. A man who is living by faith, a person who is living by faith, says this. They, they say, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. The least of these, those are the ones we want to help, we want to love. Not trample on and build some kind of reputation. Reputation. Look at verse number 15. You have the fourth woe. The fourth woe is drunkenness. Drunkenness. He says, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your body, will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. I love that picture of a cup. It's a cup of judgment. He's saying to the people of Babylon, he's saying, this is how you've been. You get people drunk so that you can take advantage of them. You, are, you yourselves are drunkards as well. In the ancient Near East, there is literature that helps us to understand that that was the reputation of the Babylonians. They were drunkards, and they are drunkards who take advantage. 
This is not about temperance. I'm not going to give you a temperance lecture on how to handle alcohol. But please understand that you are not the only one when it comes to taking the liberty of, of wine and drink. Remember, there are those around that watch as you do it. And if it leads to these kinds of things, all of a sudden what you have tried to build now crumbles. The drunkenness of these ones is so apparent and so wrong. Follow God's example. You see, instead of lusting and wanting and taking, the one that is full of faith says, you know what? I'm going to follow God. I'm going to follow God's example. And what was God's example? I'm going to love as Christ loved. How did Christ love? By giving, by giving. If you love me, you give. If you love me, you give. If I love you, I give, I give. You see, the drunkard, the faithless, they seek security in relationships instead of understanding that my relationship with God makes me so secure that I can give everything away to that person that I love. The fifth woe. Please notice what he talks about, idolaters. He says, Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the man who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, Come to life. Or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. If you like to cross-reference, write Psalm 115 next to this, these verses. Psalm 115 is a beautiful way of, of talking about idols. You say, boy, I, I'm so glad we're talking about idols, because I have none. You know, there's no little statues in my house. There's no carved images in my house. Unfortunately, what happens sometimes is we, we, we idolize social position, right? We idolize celebrity. We idolize things. You see, idolatry is not limited to these things that are listed here. They are limited to those things that we worship instead of the Creator. It is limited to those things that, that cause us to say, you know what, I'm pretty, pretty something good because I have these things. It is those things that... That, that make us think, I will be like God if I have these things. Idolatry. The faithful one has the testimony that the Thessalonians had. Remember in the book of Thessalonians, Paul says, you know, we've heard about you Thessalonians. We have heard that you have done what? Turned from idols to follow the living and true God. That's what he sees. The faithful person sees that. Now, we get to verse 19, and it's like taunting, isn't it? Remember the story about Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Remember they, they built two altars? And they said, okay, whoever is the true and the living God will bring fire down and will light the, the offering. And remember what happens is the, the prophets of Baal are dancing around their sacrifice. They're cutting themselves. They're screaming. And what's Elijah doing? He's saying, talk louder. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's asleep. It gets to taunting because the true and the living God is so awesome and so great. He is beyond what they can do through an idol. He's saying, please remember that the faithless have this end, this path that they're on that is a path of death. Don't get caught up in waiting and saying, you know what? They have it so much better than me. Maybe they've got it right. And I'll step back out of my faith and trust in what God can do and rely 
on what I can do. Now, the temptation here as well is to look at those verses in verses 6 through 18 and 19 and have this whole idea. I think Jeff used this term last week. It's this deep theological term that sometimes when we read the Old Testament and we see what God does in the Old Testament, we think that God is a meanie. Remember that? Please don't do that. Instead, when you read these words, say, you know what? God is a God of grace. Think of how long the Babylonians have done this. God is a God of long suffering and patience. Look how long he lets this go on, and then he finally will bring the hammer down, the hammer of justice down upon them. Don't look in terms of God and say, you know what? God, you're just mean in how you deal with people. Instead, say, you know what? Thank you, God, for being a God so full of grace and mercy and love and long-suffering and patience that I know that when I mess up time and time again, that you will be there to forgive me and to bring me back into your presence because of the God that you are. Use the Old Testament as an example of how God will deal with us and take care of us when we repent. Because what, ha- what happens here is these five woes, these five woes are not about human frailty. You see, we're humans. We're, we fail. We have frailties. That's not what those verses are about. Those verses are about a pattern of life, a function and a form of behavior that has been established and God will bring judgment upon. Look at what happens in verse 20. It says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. There is an assurance God's government will endure. This is in contrast to those idols, those idols that don't hear, that don't function, that can't do it. So now let's walk into the temple of the holy God and we approach him when we come into his presence, we fall silent because we are so overcome by his awesomeness because of what he is capable of doing and what he can accomplish. You see, empires come and go, but God's kingdom is forever. My day job is teaching school, and sometimes students are absent, and when they are absent for a couple of days, they come back to me to find out assignments. And this is what happens. They come back to find out their assignment, usually because I have emailed the parent, the parent has emailed me, and then the parent has talked to the student. The student comes to me, and the student comes into the room and just, like, explodes with all of these problems and complaints about where they have been and what they have done. And they just begin to talk and talk and talk and say all of these things that they can do, they will accomplish, they will get it done. I can't do it Thursday. No, I have a Spanish exam. I can't do it then. And they just talk and talk and talk. And finally, when they become exhausted, I say to them, Here's a plan. Let's work it together. And everything's going to be okay. And it's as though once they stop talking, the opportunity to share is there. Same thing with God. See, too many times, because we are so smart, we go into the presence of God and we say, God, here's the answer. This is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to accomplish. This is what I want from this. And instead of just stopping and saying, okay, God, I need to hear from you and listening to what it is that he has to say, to fall silent before him. Psalm 46, remember that verse, don't you? Psalm 46, 10, be still. And 
and know that I'm God. All of this is tied together by our faith, believing in God, trusting in Him. I went parasailing one time with three friends. If you've ever been parasailing, you know what it is, right? There are a couple of ways to do it. One of the ways is to go out into the water. A boat takes you. They put you on a little dock in the middle of the, the ocean. You wait there. The parasail comes by. The guy puts you in a harness, clicks it all together. And while you're sitting there, he says, listen, we've never lost anyone. This is a great thing. You're going to have fun. Hold on. But you really don't have to because the carabiner and all of these things, they will hold you. The driver of the boat, he's done this before. He has experience. I listened to all of this and I watched as my friend gets hooked in and he gets harnessed in and he starts hooting and hollering before he even gets off this. And he's not holding on to anything. He's trusting completely in what that parasail is going to do. And the guy's holding on to him and the boat takes off and you can see the rope getting tighter and tighter and the guy lets go and my friend rockets into the sky on this parasail. And he's all around the ocean and you can hear him just like hollering how awesome and how great and I'm seeing this and I, this is unbelievable. And as he's coming in for the landing, he's, he's out of his mind with excitement. My second friend was not so sure. And the guy who was hooking him up kind of picked up on that. And so he's fumbling around with the, the attachments and he's going, oh, I don't think this is going to work. Oh, I don't think it's going to hold. Oh, my goodness. Oh, and, and he's talking this way. And my friend, you can just see he's getting more and more like, is this going to work? Finally gets it all hooked up and he goes, oh, wait. And my friend goes off with the words of this guy in the back screaming, wait. And the guy falls down on the ground and he's rolling and he's laughing and he's hollering, ah, you know. And you can see my friend, his knees are pulled up, his hands are clutching. You know, you can see him in this parasail just all bound up and you're like, oh, my goodness. He comes back and he could hardly get his hands off of that because he did not believe that that thing would hold him and take care of him because of the information that he had gotten. See, this morning, the faith that we have, the trust that we have in what God is doing comes from a reliable source, the words of God. So while we're waiting for the answer to the complaints and the questions that we have, remember that he has a plan, that the power comes through our faith, and the path of the faithless should be ignored. We don't want to go that way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for how good you are. Father, thank you so much for the way in which you communicate to us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunities. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that bared down upon us to help us understand what it is that you have planned. Father, make us, make us more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Have a wonderful week.